Chapter 2 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 2 by Helen Campbell. Christian Work in Water Street. The story of Jerry McCauley's life told by himself. A career of wickedness and crime. The mission now. The Five Points was once the terror of every policeman, as well as every decent citizen who realized its existence. It was for years the breeding ground of crime of every order, and thus the first workers in city mission work naturally turned to it as the chief spot for purification. Here, the Water Street Mission was begun just after the Civil War, and here it still continues its work. Its story has often been told, yet the interest in it seems no less fresh than at the time of its inception. For years, it was headed by Jerry McCauley, a man whose absolutely unique personality has stamped itself forever in the minds of all who dealt with him in person. It is to him that every mission of the same general order owes its standard of effort and the knowledge of methods without which such work is powerless. And though personally he never claimed this place, all who knew him would accord it unhesitatingly. I have often talked with Jerry and his wife on the origin of their work, their personal share in it, and the effect produced in the neighborhood its present vileness being peace and innocence compared with his condition when Jerry began his work there. The second floor of the mission building was their home, a comfortable, prettily furnished flat, exquisitely neat, and with a home-like feeling not always had in statelier places. And I was always greeted with a warmth and courtesy that absolved me at once from the guilt of intrusion." Come again. Come as often as you like, Jerry would say in his hearty way each time I took my leave. I'll tell you anything you'd like to know, though if I talk the rest of me life, I couldn't tell all the stories I know nor the sights I've seen. I did come again and again, at last taking my place among the regulars, as the few were called who had stated employment and came constantly. With my own eyes, I saw men who had come into the mission, sodden with drink, turn into quiet, steady workers. Now and then one fell, in one case permanently, but the prodigals commonly returned, confessing their weakness and laboring earnestly to prove their penitence. I saw foul homes where dirty bundles of straw had been the only bed, gradually become clean and respectable. Hard faces grow patient and gentle. Oaths and foul words give place to quiet speech. It was for Jerry, then, to tell the story, taken almost verbatim from his own lips, and given with all its personal details as one of the most wonderful in the history of crime, or the story of the poor born to life in a New York slum. Words can never hold the pathos, the tenderness, the strength, the quick-flashing Irish humor which made him the power that he was, and that even with a weakened body fast failing to meet the demands made upon it, still rendered him the most wonderful of apostles to the roughs. 
He told the story to me in a long afternoon in the old mission, from which he soon after removed to the Cremon mission, begun by himself and his wife, and where he shortly afterwards died. The Water Street work was left in the hands of one of his own converts and still goes on in the same lines, and these two missions may be said to do the most distinctive work in the city. Water Street and its uptown prototype, the Cremon Mission, are of the same order, and each is unique in its way. There are others, most of them connected, as is that of Madison Square Mission, with some special church. All have their own interest and deserve full recognition, but they lack the distinctive quality given by Jerry McCauley and his wife. Her personality is as much a part of the work as was his, and her story is also part of his. There's two sides to this thing, Jerry began, throwing himself back in the big armchair from which he rose at intervals to walk restlessly up and down. Folks mostly seem to think there ain't but one. It was only last night a fellow come in here ripe for a row. You've never happened to see an out-and-out rough spilling over with fight and bound to make something fly before he's through. More of his sort used to bother us than do now, and it's lucky, too, for the time when I could just take any of them up by the scruff of the neck and drop them on the sidewalk just like you'd drop a strange cat is pretty well over with me. But this fellow came in last night and sat a while, and I was trying to think just where I'd seen him and couldn't for the life of me till he rose up with a sort of sneery smile, and then I minded well enough where we'd met, in Sing Sing, and he working at the loom next to me. He went on so with his sneery talk, t'was hard for me to make out if he was in earnest or not, saying how he remembered me in times way back and the way I used to look and how well set up I seemed to be now, and me fine coat and good clothes all through, and just licking me chops to think what a comfortable, easy time I was having, and chuckling to myself every time I told the life I'd led. You're off there, says I, rising up so sudden that he jumped. He thought maybe I was going to hit him. Yes, you're off there. There's many a one, says I, loves to tell the story of me own life. And I tell you and them, as I've often said before, there's nothing I wouldn't do if I could see me way clear never to tell it again in this world. Do you suppose if a man was set up to his neck in a sewer and kept there for months and years, he'd be chuckling over it when he got out? Faith not. He'd be apt to keep quiet unless he saw some other fella stepping into the same place, and then, if he'd the heart of a grasshopper, he'd warn him off. Do you think I'll ever stop remembering that well nigh 30 years of my life have gone into deviltry and no help for it? The only comfort I take is in thinking that if I hadn't been the devil's own all that time, I'd never know how to feel for them that's in his clutch yet. He's a mighty tight grip on you, me friend, and many a one like you, and you'd better come up in front and let every soul pray hard that you may find it out for yourself. He made for the door then and won't come back in a hurry. I know his kind. It's a kind God don't want and the devil won't have. God forgive me for saying so, but you'd think so too, maybe, if you'd had them to deal with and could never be just certain whether they had a soul or not.
I used to say they had and must be worked over, and I don't say now they haven't. Only there's others more promising to spend your strength on, and I've had to learn to let his kind mostly alone. The Lord knows. He made them, and maybe he'll find out a way after a while. But it's a poor show for me to be doubting about any human being when I've got myself to remember. Jerry was silent and for a few moments paced restlessly up and down the floor of the great room over the mission, a room which someday is to make a temporary home for some of the many who, if kept from old haunts for even a few days, would gain a strength attainable in no other way. Then, as now, it was simply an unpartitioned space, far enough above the street to hold a little sense of quiet. Ivies ran over the windows, and the cages of two pet mockingbirds were there, birds that twittered restlessly as the tall figure passed by and chirped impatiently for recognition. It came in a moment. The doors of the cages were opened, and the pretty creatures perched on Jerry's arm and thrust their heads into his pockets for crumbs. Jerry's face cleared. From some corner, a wriggling mealworm was produced, and a mock quarrel began, the birds making fierce little dashes at the worm and at each other, and securing the morsel at last with a triumphant whistle, followed by a flood of pure, clear song. "'There's heaps of satisfaction in the creatures,' Jerry said as he returned them to the cages and sat down before them. Many's the time I come here, most gone from tiredness in the meetings, and they rest me so I can go at it again. I never knew I had a knack for them and could learn them anything till one was given me and I began of myself. It's the same way with flowers. They're good friends of mine now, but it's strange to think over the years I hardly knew there was such a thing in the world. I can look back now and think how things were in Ireland, but I'd no sense of them then. It was a pretty country, but me and mine had small business in it, but to break the laws and then curse the makers of them. You want to know all about it, and I'll tell you now, for there'll never be a better time. The Story of Jerry Macaulay's Life me father was a counterfeiter and ran away from justice before ever I can remember him. There was a lot of us, and they put me with me grandmother. She was old and a devout Romanist, and many's the time when she was telling her beads and kissing the floor for penance. I'd shy things at her just to hear her curse and swear at me, and then she'd back to her knees. I got well beyond her or anybody by the time I was thirteen— they let me run loose. I'd no schooling and got blows for meat and drink till I wished myself dead many a time. I thought, could I only get to me sister in America, I'd be near the same as in paradise, when all at once they sent me to her, and for a while I ran errands and helped me brother-in-law. But I was tall in my years and strong and had no fear for any man living and a born thief as well. That stealing came natural and easy and soon I was in a den on Water Street learning to be a prize fighter and with a boat on the river for thieving at night. 
By this time, I was 19, and I don't suppose a bigger nuisance than Loafer ever stepped above ground. I made good hauls, for the river police didn't amount to much in them days, and it was pretty easy to board a vessel and take what you pleased. The fourth ward belonged to my kind. It's bad enough now, but it's heaven to what it was then. Now, I'd done enough to send me to prison 40 times over, and I knew it, but that didn't make it any easier to go there for something I hadn't done. A crime was sworn on me by some that hated me bad and wanted me out of the way. Fifteen years in prison. That was the sentence I got, and I not 20 years old. That hour going up the river was the toughest I'd ever come to. I was mad with rage, but handcuffed and forced to keep quiet. It was in me to kill me keeper, and I marked him then. Wait, said I to myself, I'll be even with you some day if I have to hang for it. And when I put on the prison dress and they shut me in, I knocked me head again the wall, and if I dared, I would have killed myself. At last, I made up me mind I'd obey rules and see if I couldn't get pardoned out, or maybe there'd be some chance of escape, and I set me mind toward that. I tried it for two years, learned to read, and had a pile of cheap novels they let us buy, and I learned carpet weaving, and no one had a word to say agin me. But then I grew weakly. I'd been used to the open air always, and a shut-in life told upon me. Then I got ugly and thought it was no use, and they punished me. Do you know what that is? It's the leather collar that holds and galls you, and you strapped up by your arms with your toes just touching the floor. And it's the shower bath that leaves you in a dead faint till another dash brings you out. I've stood it all and cursed God while I did. I was that desperate I would have killed the keeper, but I saw no chance out, even if I did. It was one Sunday morning. I'd been in prison five years. I dragged myself into the chapel and sat down. Then I heard a voice I knew, and I looked up. There by the chaplain was a man I'd been on a spree with many and many a time. Orville Gardner, he stepped down off the platform. My men, says he, I've no right anywhere but among you, for I've been one of you in sin. And then he prayed till there wasn't a dry eye there but mine. I was that shamed to be seen crying, but I looked at him and wondered what had come to him to make him so different. He said a verse that struck me, and when I got into me cell again, I took down the Bible and began to hunt for it. I read for a while till I found something that hit the Catholics, I thought, and I pitched me Bible down and kicked it all round the cell. The vile heretics, I says. That's the way they show up the Catholics, is it? It was the verse that says, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. 
I'll have a Catholic Bible, says I, and not this thing that no decent Catholic would touch with a 10-foot pole. So I got me a Catholic Bible from the library, but it was pretty much the same, only more lumbered up with notes. I read them both, and the more I read, the more miserable I was. I wanted to be different. I thought about the new look in Gardner's face. What makes it, says I, and if he's different, why can't I be? Now, if I send for the priest, he'll set me to doing penance and saying so many prayers and all such like. The chaplain says I'm to be sorry for me sins and ask God to forgive me. Which way is it, I wonder? You wouldn't think I'd have minded, but if 10,000 people had been in me cell, I couldn't have felt worse about praying. I kneeled down, blushing that hot as I never done in me life before, and then I'd up again. And that's the way it was three or four weeks till I was just desperate. Then there came a night when I said I'd pray till some sense come to me, and if it didn't, I'd never pray again. I was that weak and trembly, I seemed as if I could die easy enough. I knelt there and waited between the times I prayed. I wouldn't stir from me knees. Me eyes were shut. I was in an agony, and the sweat rolling from me face in big drops, and God be merciful to me, a sinner, came from me lips. Then, in a minute, something seemed to be by me. I heard a voice, or felt I heard one plain enough. It said, My son... Thy sins, which are many, are forgiven. To the day of me death, I think I saw a light about me and smelled something sweet as flowers in the cell. I didn't know if I was alive or not. I shouted out, Oh, praise God, praise God. Shut your noise, the guard said going by. What's the matter with you? I've found Christ, I says. Me sins are all forgiven me. I'll report you, says he, and he took me number, but he didn't report me. Well, then seeing how it had come to me, I began to pray for others. I was quiet and content all the time, and I believed if it was good for me, God would find a way to let me out of prison. I didn't pray for it for two years, but just worked there to save others, and many a one turned to a new life and stuck to it. Then at last came a pardon when I'd been in seven years and six months just, and I came back down the river to New York. There never was a lonesomer man alive. I wouldn't go back to the fourth ward for fear I'd be tempted, and so I wandered around trying for work till one day I met a friend, and he took me to a lager beer saloon. Lager beer had come up since I went up the river. I didn't know it was any more hurt than root beer. They said it wasn't. But that first night did for me. Me head got in a buzz, and in a week or two, I wanted something stronger. I got work in a hat shop and had good wages, but a strike come, and I let it and lost the place. It was wartime, and I went into the bounty business, a rascally business, too. Then I had a boat on the river again. I'd buy stolen goods of the sailors and then make them enlist for fear of being arrested, and I took the bounty. The end of the war stopped this, and then I stuck to the river, buying and selling smuggled goods and paying all I could in counterfeit money. 
Do you remember when the Idaho burned in the East River? Me and me partners rode out, not to save life, but to rob. When we saw him screaming in the water, we turned to and helped him, though one of me partners in the boat said we'd make a pile picking up coats and hats. Often and often I was shot at. Do you think I didn't remember what I'd had given me and how I lost it? I didn't pray. I didn't dare to. I kept under liquor all the time to head off thinking, for I said God was done with me, and I was bound for hell, sure and certain. About this time one night, I'd gone over to Brooklyn very drunk, too drunk to do me share of the work we'd laid out for that night, and as me partner boarded the ship we were after, I slipped and fell overboard and went under like a shot. And Eddie carried me off, and the boat went another way. I knew I was drowning, for I went down twice, and in me extremity I called on God, though I felt too mean to do it. It seemed as if I was lifted up and the boat brought to me. I got hold of it somehow. I don't just know how. The water had sobered me. When I was in it, I heard, plain as if a voice spoke to me, Jerry, you have been saved for the last time. Go out on that river again, and you'll never have another chance. I was mad. I went home and drank and drank and drank. I was sodden with drink, and as awful looking a case, more so than you've ever laid eyes on. And oh, the misery o' me thoughts. It was the John Allen excitement then, and I heard the singing, and I was sick with remembering, and yet drinking day and night to drown it all. A city missionary came in one day to the house on Cherry Street where I boarded. He shied a bit when he saw me at the top of the stairs. A head like a mop and an old red shirt. He'd been pitched down the stairs by fellers like me, and I'd have done it meself once. I hung around while he went in a room, thinking maybe he could get me a job of honest work, and when he come out, I told him so. He asked me to step out on the pavement. He said afterward I was that evil looking he was afraid of me and he didn't know what I might do. So out on the street I went and he took me straight to the Howard Mission and there we had a long talk and a gentleman wanted me to sign the pledge. It's no use, says I. I shall break it. Ask God to keep you from breaking it, he said. I thought a minute and then I signed it and went home. Me partner was there, and he laughed himself hoarse when I told him. He had a bottle of gin in his hand that very minute. You, he says, here, drink. I took the glass and drank. That's the last glass I'll ever take, says I. Yes, says he, till the next one. I'd hardly swallowed it when who should come in but the missionary. We went out together, and I told him I was dead broke and hungry, and I would have to go on the river again once more anyhow. Jerry, says he, before you shall ever do that again, I'll take off this coat and pawn it. The coat was thin and old. I knew he was poor, and it went to me heart that he'd do such a thing as that. He went away a minute, and when he come back, he brought me fifty cents, and he kept on helping. He followed me up day after day, and at last one night at his house, where he'd had me to tea, and there was singing and praying afterwards, I prayed myself once more, and believed I should be forgiven.' 
There wasn't any shouting this time, but there was quiet and peace. It was a hard pull. I got work now and then, but more often not. And then everybody thought I was shamming for what I could get out of it. I didn't wonder, and I helped it along by doing what you'd never believe. I caved in again. Three times I was drunk, and do you know what did it? Tobacco. That's why I'm so down on tobacco now. Chew and smoke, and there'll be a steady craving for something, and mostly it ends in whiskey. A man that honestly wants the Spirit of God in him has got to be clean, I tell you, inside and out. He's got to shut down on all his old dirty tricks or he's gone. That's the way I found it. I was married by this time to Maria, and she's been God's help from that day to this. And often we talked about some way to get at the poor souls in the fourth ward. We were doing day's work, both of us, and poor as poor could be. But we said, why have we both been used to filth and nastiness and all else, if not so's to know how to help some others out of it? And one day I had a sort of vision. I thought we had a house in the fourth ward and a big bath and a stream of people coming in. I washed them outside, and the Lord washed them inside, and I cried as I thought, Oh, if I could only do that for Jesus' sake. Do it for one if you can't do it for more, said Maria, and that's the way we begun in an old rookery of the house, in one room, and a little sign hung out. The Helping Hand for Men You'd never believe how many that sign drew in. We did what we could, and when Thanksgiving Day came, friends gave us a good dinner for all. Afterwards, there was a meeting, and it was so blessed we were moved to say they should all come the next night. From that day to this, first in the old building and then in this, the new one, there's been a meeting every night in the year, and now it's hundreds, yes, thousands, that can say the Water Street Mission was their help to a new life. Day and night we work, you know how. My life is slowly but surely going from me. I feel it, but living or dying, it's the Lord's. All these years he has held me, but I don't know now but that I'd fallen again if I hadn't been so busy holding on to others. And that's the way to keep men. Set them to work. The minute they say they're sick of the old ways, start them to pull in somebody else. You see, when your soul is just on fire, longing to get at every wretch and bring him into the fold, there's no time for your old tricks and no wanting to try them again. I could talk a month telling a one and another that's been here. Oh, there's stories if one but knew them. And not a day that you don't know there ain't a bummer in the fourth ward so low but what the Lord can pick him out of the gutter and set him on his feet. That's why I tell me story and everything right out and plain. There's times I'm dead sick of remembering it, but I have to do it, and them very times seem the ones that help most. And as long as tongue can move, may I never be ashamed to tell what I've been saved from. This was Jerry's story in the days in which Water Street still counted him as its peculiar product and property. 
Even then, his eyes had turned toward a haunt of vice, not so plain to the outward eye, but as full of need as any den in the lower wards of the city, the Cremon Garden on 32nd Street. To the ordinary passer-by, there were few indications that the region needed him. But Jerry knew, and after long discussion and much opposition, the Cremon mission was opened, and he took charge of the work. Such a life as Jerry led in the days of his wickedness made him an easy prey to disease, and he died at the age of 45. He had long been ailing and knew that his call home would come suddenly. On the day previous to his death, he was in the best of spirits. That night, he was taken with a severe hemorrhage of the lungs. While expecting every moment would be his last, he said in an almost inaudible voice to one of the converts of the mission, pointing upwards as he spoke, It's all right. He was too weak to say more. Another hemorrhage came, and his spirit took its flight. On the following Sunday afternoon, Broadway Tabernacle was thronged by a vast audience assembled to pay a last tribute of respect to the dead. Hundreds were unable to obtain entrance. Prominent clergymen conducted the solemn and affecting service, and the Tabernacle Choir sang with tender pathos. We too must come to the riverside, one by one, one by one. We're nearer its brink each evening tide, one by one, one by one. For two hours, a constant stream of friends passed by the coffin to take a last look at Jerry's face. During the services, a gentleman was standing at the entrance of the tabernacle when a shabby-looking old man who had been lounging on the outskirts of the crowd approached and said, Beg pardon, sir, but seeing as you were connected here and seeing as how I ain't posted on ways and things, I thought I'd ask you a favor. The listener was turning away, expecting an untimely appeal for alms. But the old man said, I heard it's the right thing to send flowers and sitch to put on the coffin of anyone who's been good to you. Well, I don't know, sir, as I've got the rights of it or not, but there's something here for Jerry. He took off his tall, battered hat as he spoke, and felt in it with trembling fingers. It ain't no great shakes, he said, as he took out a little bunch of white flowers. Then, looking up, as though to read in the face of his listener approval or disapproval, he went on apologetically. There are no great shakes, I'll allow, and I spect they mayn't set off the roses and things rich people send. I'm a poor man, you know, but when I hear it as Jerry was gone, I gets up and says to myself, go on and do what's fashionable. That's the way people do when they want to show a dead man's done a heap for them. So there they are. They were handed to the usher. And when you drop them with the rest, though they ain't no great shakes, he added with the old apologetic look, Jerry, who was my friend'll know, and his voice trembled. He'll know they come from old Joe Chappie. What did he do for you? His listener ventured. A great deal, the old man replied. But it's long ago now. My gal had gone to the bad and was dying without ever a bite for her to eat. I got around drunk, but it sobered me, and I hustled about to hunt up some good man. They asked if she went to Sunday school and all that. Of course, she didn't. How could the poor gal? Well, 
They called her names, said she was a child of wrath, and I went away brokenhearted when I come across Jerry. And he went home with me and comforted me, and he said Almighty God wouldn't be rough on a poor gal what didn't know no better. She died then, but I ain't forgot Jerry, no, nor never will. The poor old wreck could not be prevailed upon to enter, and the crowd was so great that the little bunch of flowers could not reach the casket. The choice floral emblems that covered Jerry's coffin could not be sweeter to the dead than that simple offering of a bunch of wilted white flowers. How did it fare with the deserted mission on Water Street after Jerry gave his time to the Cremon mission is often asked. Deserted is not the word. As long as he lived, he visited it often, and there was no alteration in methods and only the most temporary diminution of interest. One of the most earnest workers in the old mission took entire charge, but another whose day was not yet to come and who stands for one of the most effectual pieces of work accomplished in the Cremon mission today fills Jerry's place in Water Street as hardly another could do. The story of Water Street would be incomplete without some portion of this history, as unique in its way as Jerry's. It is the story of two not one, though, but one has chosen Water Street as his field. A log cabin in Ohio was the home into which both were born, but it was a cabin like many another of that region, the home of New England emigrants. The mother, the daughter of a minister, and both parents educated, self-respecting members of the little community. Here, the two Hadley brothers were born, and here, till 18 years old, the younger kept his promise to his mother that tobacco and liquor should be untouched. The older one had already gone out into the world. S.H. Hadley, the younger, born in 1843, shall tell the story in his own way and words. S.H. Hadley's Story a friend, who was the miller of the county, told me he would never speak to me again if I did not drink, and that he would think I had some grudge against him or felt myself above him socially. I took the bottle after he had coaxed me a full half hour and put it to my lips and drank. Will I ever forget that moment? The vow I had made to my mother was broken, and the devil came in and took full possession. My mother died a short time after this, happily in ignorance of my sin. I was away from home that day, but her last words were, Tell Hopkins to meet me in heaven. By the side of my dead mother, I vowed never to drink again, but in three days yielded to the temptation. It was thus far only occasional. My father died, and I began the study of medicine with the village doctor, who was himself a heavy drinker, though a brilliant member of the profession. Both of us went down swiftly, the doctor soon drinking himself to death. I left the place and, after a little experience as traveling salesman, became a professional gambler and for 15 years followed this life. In 1870, I came to New York, where I had a fine position offered me, which I soon lost. Delirium tremens came more than once, and in spite of a strong constitution, the time was reached when I knew that death must soon result. 
One Tuesday evening, I sat in a saloon in Harlem, a homeless, friendless, dying drunkard. I had pawned or sold everything that would bring drink. I could not sleep unless I was drunk. I had not eaten for days, and for four nights preceding, I had suffered with delirium tremens, or the horrors, from midnight till morning. I had often said, I will never be a tramp. I will never be cornered. When that time comes, if it ever does, I will find a home in the bottom of the river. But the Lord so ordered it that when that time did come, I was not able to walk a quarter of the way to the river. As I sat there thinking, I seemed to feel some great and mighty presence. I did not know then what it was. I walked up to the bar and pounded it with my fist till I made the glasses rattle. I said I would never take another drink if I died in the street, and felt as though that would happen before morning. Something said, if you want to keep this promise, go and have yourself locked up. I went to the nearest station house and had myself locked up. I was put in a narrow cell, and it seemed as though all the demons that could find room came into that place with me. This was not all the company I had either. No, that dear spirit that came to me in the saloon was present and said, Pray. I did pray and kept on praying. When I was released, I found my way to my brother's house, where every care was given me. While lying in bed, the admonishing spirit never left me, and when I arose the following Sunday morning, I felt that that day would decide my fate. Toward evening, it came into my head to go over to the Cremon Mission and hear Jerry McCauley. I went. The house was packed, and with great difficulty, I made my way to a space near the platform. There I saw the apostle to the drunkard and outcast, Jerry McCauley. He rose and amid deep silence told his experience. There was something about this man that carried conviction with me, and I found myself saying, I wonder if God can save me. I listened to the testimony of many who had been saved from rum, and I made up my mind that I would be saved or die right there. When the invitation to kneel for prayer was given, I knelt down with quite a crowd of drunkards. I was a total stranger, but I felt I had sympathy, and it helped me. Jerry made the first prayer. I shall never forget it. He said, Dear Savior, won't you look down on these poor souls? They need your help, Lord. They can't get along without it. Blessed Jesus, these poor sinners have got themselves into a bad hole. Won't you help them out? Speak to them, Lord. Do for Jesus' sake. Amen. Then Jerry said, All keep on your knees and keep praying while I ask these dear souls to pray for themselves. He spoke to one after another as he placed his hands on their heads. Brother, you pray. Now tell the Lord just what you want him to do for you. How I trembled as he approached me. I felt like backing out. The devil knelt by my side and whispered in my ear, reminding me of crimes I had forgotten for months. What are you going to do about such and such matters if you start to be a Christian tonight? Now, you can't afford to make a mistake. Hadn't you better think this matter over a while and try to fix up some of the troubles you are in and then start? 
Oh, what a conflict was going on for my poor soul. Jerry's hand was on my head. He said, Brother, pray. I said, Can't you pray for me? Jerry said, All the prayers in the world won't save you unless you pray for yourself. I halted but a moment, and then I said with breaking heart, Dear Jesus, can you help me? Never can I describe that moment. Although my soul had been filled with indescribable gloom, I felt the glorious brightness of the noonday sun shine into my heart. I felt I was a free man. From that moment to this, I have never tasted a drink of whiskey, and I have never seen enough money to make me take one. I promised God that night that if he would take away the appetite for strong drink, I would work for him all my life. He has done his part, and I have been trying to do mine. It took four years to make my brother believe I was in earnest. He believed it fast enough when he was converted himself. He is a splendid-looking man, a colonel in the army, and is doing rescue work, and will as long as he lives, with all his money and all his strength. He had a newspaper run in the interest of gin mills, and the day after he was converted, he cut out every advertisement that they had given him. This paper is converted, too, he said, and it was a queer-looking paper when he got through. I was called to take charge of the Water Street Mission after I had been working with all my might for four years in the Cremon. And here I am settled with my wife and two other missionaries, one of whom everybody in the ward knows as well as ever they knew Jerry. Mother Sherwood, they all call her. We run low in our funds often, for it costs $4,000 a year to carry on the work. When a man starts on a better life, the odds are often against him, and he must be helped for a while with food, clothing, and whatever else may be wanted. Saturday night is coffee night at the mission room. Many a poor, discouraged fellow who has been looking for work and found none and gone on short commons a whole week drifts in here on Saturday afternoon, knowing that he will get a cup of coffee and a sandwich in the evening. There are plenty of bummers and tramps in our Saturday night crowd, and some a good deal worse than either, too. We weed out a few, but we try to keep nearly all, for who knows what may come to them. Empty cups are placed on the seats, and each man picks one up as he sits down and patiently waits for hours. At seven o'clock, our own workers carry the big coffee pots among the audience and laugh for joy as they see the look on some of the faces. The men begin to pile in by three o'clock on Saturday afternoon, though our service does not begin till half past seven. Time is of no account with them, you know, and the room is packed full in half an hour. We are often obliged to lock the doors and turn the rest away. Many have nowhere else to go. After lunch, we have a service of song, followed by an experience meeting, lasting till half past nine when the men depart. Most of them sleep in cheap lodging rooms or police station houses, though some walk the streets all night. On several cold nights this winter, we let some of them sleep on the floor of the mission room all night. Coffee night is one of our institutions and always draws a big crowd, though generally a pretty tough one. No matter how dirty, how vicious, how depraved a man may be, he will find a welcome here.
We will take him downstairs and wash him. If he is sick, we will have a doctor for him or get him into a hospital, and we won't lose sight of him, and we will bury him if he dies. There is hope for all of them if they once begin to pray. Plainly, Jerry has found such a successor as he himself would have chosen, and the work he loved goes on as he would have had it. The doors of the little mission swing inward for all comers, and the voices of men who have found here refuge and hope are always sending out into the night the call. Calling now to thee, prodigal, calling now to thee. Thou hast wandered far away, but he's calling now to thee. End of chapter 2